Good morning, everyone. Morena, Paul, very cultured, multi-bilingual. <laughs> it really is a, always a pleasure to be here, to share, um, to come together, to praise him, to thank him, appreciate what he's doing in us and through us. Um, I've just been reading in Hebrews where it says, don't neglect um, gathering together all the more as you see the day approaching. And so it's so important that we don't neglect not just attending a service, but being together, coming and sharing and being vulnerable, sharing hearts, joining together in what it is that God is actually doing in us as a family, hey? Um, so it really is a, a privilege to, to be here and to share, but it's actually a privilege for you to be here, <laughs> not because I'm preaching. <laughs> It's a privilege to be here because God is doing a powerful work amongst us. He's bringing revelation like a prayer that makes us free on the inside. He is bringing to light the mysteries that have been hidden before the foundations of the world, and he's making them real to us. You know, we don't need to make the gospel relevant for our day. Actually, the eternal word of God has always been relevant. It's the most relevant thing. It's the thing that founded the world. It's, it's the thing that was spoken into being before the world ever was. And actually, we don't need to make the gospel relevant for today. The gospel needs to make us relevant to him and to one another and to the world around us. By bringing into this natural earth the reality of heaven. And that's your job. Did you know that? That's why you're here. That's why we gather. To be edified, encouraged, spurred on to be the people of God that the Bible calls the pillar and support of the truth here on the earth. When you read that, do, do you see that as being your role? Thank you. <laughs> The reason why you wake up in the morning is to be a pillar that supports the truth of God. Now, this morning, I don't know if there's any flashy PowerPoint or anything like that, but I'm going to be talking about true worshippers. And we've been hearing from Greg about uh, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And Greg um, covered some fantastic grounds looking at what this living water was. Um, that the lady had the opportunity to receive through revelation, through faith. And I'm going to be building on that this morning. We're going to be looking at the second half of the passage from John chapter 4, verses 19 onwards, um, and looking at who these true worshippers actually are. What, what does it mean to be a true worshipper? What, in fact, is worship? Now, I think for a long time, worship in the modern Christian culture has been defined as singing songs, wouldn't you say? But I know that we are so much more sophisticated than to think that, that worship is just about singing songs, wouldn't you say? That's not, new, that's not new information for us, right? We know that worship is much more than some instruments, some music, some nice songs, a bit of feel-good, even a bit of um, two-step if you're Paul at the front, and then we go home. But worship as defined in the scripture is much bigger than singing songs. It talks about in Romans that actually your true act of worship is the offering of your entire body. But there's even more to it than that. And I want to put to you this morning that worship 
is not just living for God. It's not even being devoted to God. In fact, it's living from God before ever is living for God. And in living from God, we live for God. But we have to get the one as number one and the two as number two. The message of the gospel is not an invitation to live for God. It's not even to lay down your lives for God first. Actually, the great mystery of the gospel is that you as a believer can live from God. And in living from God, all of a sudden you'll be able to lay down your life for God when you never could before. It's an invitation to live from God. You know, without this lens, without this perspective, without this way of seeing, you will read the scripture and you will interpret it wrong every single time. In fact, the scriptures themselves, the words that are supposed to reveal the true life, Christ himself, will actually condemn you as opposed to inspire you. Particularly Jesus' words, would you not say? I would say that Jesus' words, misunderstood, are even more condemning than the words of the prophets in the Old Testament. Says this, you've heard it, you heard it was written. Do not commit adultery. But I say to you, he who lusts in his heart has committed adultery already. Now, which one is more condemning? An expectation that you don't commit a physical act, or the expectation that even the thoughts and the motives of your heart could bring to light a reality that you're potentially not in. It's, is that more condemnation or less? But in fact, this is why the great mystery of the gospel is actually not a call to live from God, as for God, it's a call to live from God. Because all of a sudden, when you hear the mystery of the gospel is Christ in you, the hope of glory, and you read a scripture that says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, you hear it not through the lens of, of something that you need to do, a religious standard that you need to meet, but a life source and a power that's been given to you to live from a heavenly substance and reality within you that enables and empowers you to live in a way that you never could have even thought of, dreamed of, imagined, considered. See, the message of the gospel is not about living for God, it's living from God and then for God. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It doesn't make sense. The gospel is so unrelatable. Paul's words are so unrelatable. I can't, I can't relate to this man unless I know that the gospel is not just about living for God. It's about living from God. Because he writes the scriptures through those lens, and it's confusing. He says this in Romans 5, and we'll look at it more later on. Having been justified... By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now that scripture can be received in one of two ways. Receiving it through the lens of earthly understanding. If you don't have peace, you haven't been justified. Oh my goodness, that is so full of condemnation. Potentially even taking out everyone in this, or I don't know, maybe the vast majority of people in this room, from even having been justified. But maybe that's not what he's saying at all. Maybe the scriptures are written 
from a different reality. That, that as he's saying, coming into a, a living, revealed knowledge of my justification, I have peace on the inside that I never had before. I receive the work of the gospel, not just in, in, not just in intellectual knowledge, but in substance. I, just, I don't theoretically understand that I'm justified. I know it. And because I know it, I have peace with God. Now, this is for us, this, this way of being, this way of operating. And I'd like to put to you this morning that true worship is about living from this place. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 4, verses 19. And point number one, if you're eagerly um, jotting down notes, I put here, true worshipers live from a true knowledge of who God is. True worshippers live from a true knowledge of who God is. So John, chapter 4, starting from verse 19. I'll just read it. Read the passage. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and, your, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit. And in truth. He says, you worship what you do not know. You worship what you do not know. Now, Jesus says this. Let me read this again. But an hour is coming and now is when, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. Now, the Father is not casual about these people. He says he's actually seeking them. He's seeking a peculiar people, a particular type of people. It's, they're called the body of Christ. But he's seeking this particular group of people out from the world that he calls true worshippers. Now, there's two words for true in the Greek language. The first is altheus. It means true to fact. Factually correct. And the second word for truth is this, altheanos. It means substantially true. It literally means this, where there is a connection between what is visible and the underlying reality. You've got two. One is factually correct and one is substantially true. Now, because this is a full participation ordeal, I'd like to pose to you and ask you the question, when Jesus says, I'm seeking true worshippers, what word is used as the word true? Is it altheus, true to fact, is it, or is it altheanos, substantially true? Any takers? Any takers apart from Greek? Thank you, Luke. That was 
That was uh, a low mumble from the whole. (laughs) So Jesus is saying this, I'm looking for worshippers who aren't just true in fact, but are substantially true. You know, in a court of law, you have witnesses, right? Now, you potentially have true witnesses and false witnesses. But what is it that makes someone a true witness? Is it that they have the facts correct? Or is it that they've actually seen, heard, witnessed, experienced something that has then put them in a position of authority to judge what's going on in a particular situation. In fact, if someone came to a court of law, even if they had all the facts correct, the fact that they're claiming to be a witness when they hadn't seen, heard, or experienced makes them a false witness, wouldn't you say? It's a pretty dangerous position to be in, given the position of authority. So you can see here that being true and being false isn't a matter of being factually correct or incorrect. It's actually a position of having seen, experienced, witnessed, and now living from that reality. Now God is looking for true worshippers, people who live from the true substance of, of who he is. Now in a marriage, you could be in a heated discussion, maybe a debate, maybe an even argument. Actually, let, just let's talk hypothetically because I think as good Christians, no one would have ever been in an argument with their wife, <laughs> ever. But you can be disagreeing on a particular subject and you can be absolutely, totally convinced that you're true. You can have all of the facts to back yourself up and you can stand on those facts. But you can be factually correct You can be right, and yet you can be wrong. You can be right factually and wrong in your attitude. Why? Because you're true, but you're not substantially true. You're right in your debate, but you are not true in embodying the reality of truth that's Christ and demonstrating righteousness as opposed to rightness. See the difference? One is factually correct, the other is true in reality. Now, in being true in reality, you are factually correct. But there's a one and a two thing going on. I put here, God is looking for people who are substantially true, people who have seen and experienced God through revelation. Factual correctness for this lady here would correct her on what mountain she was worshipping on. But revelation knowledge would correct her heart and address a much deeper issue of what it means to be true worshippers. See, Jesus almost doesn't even answer the question. He says it's not about this mountain or about that mountain. It's not about the physical expression primarily of your devotion. You could come and worship on the right mountain and not be a true worshipper because you're getting your facts right and you're getting your religious devotion right but I'm looking for a much deeper issue to address. It's your heart. So John 4, moving along, 23, says, An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship in spirit and the truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. True worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. 
But these are not two separate things, spirit and truth. They're actually one posture. You can't have the spirit and not the truth. In fact, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth. He says he will give you his spirit so that he will lead you into all truth. The two are absolutely and completely inseparable one from another. And in thinking that we would have one can sometimes disqualify us from having any. At the point of conception, you have a sperm and an egg. Is a sperm a living person? No. Is an egg a living person? No. But what needs to happen? The two need to become one. And it's at the point of conception that new life is formed. Say, the egg is not enough on itself. It's not even a half-truth. It's not a person. It can't be defined as a person. But when the two are made one, new life is formed and birthed. It's a new and living way. Through entering in through intimacy, through revelation, through a true knowledge of who God is, life, true life is birthed on the inside. Will you go from having one or the other to the substance of who he is? Now in 1 Corinthians 1.22, it talks about the Jews and it says that Jews seek for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preached Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block, and to Greeks, it's foolishness. But And Paul goes on to say, but I desire to know nothing among you apart from Christ and him crucified. See, they were not seeking what was wrong. They were seeking signs, which are a genuine expression of who God is. And they were seeking wisdom, the knowledge of who God was, but through earthly understanding. But Paul says, let me tell you about a greater way, a new and living way. It's called knowing Christ and him crucified. It's called genuine, real revelation of Christ on the inside that changes you. Now, when the Spirit is defined as signs and wonders, spiritual encounters, healings, miracles, all of those things which are absolutely, totally right in God, they would seem to make up one side of a two-sided coin. Or when truth is defined as knowledge of the Scriptures, of right doctrine, it can sound like it makes up the other. But in reality, you can't have one without the other because doctrinal correctness does not necessarily bring you revelation knowledge. Any more than having received a miracle can bring you into resurrected life. So Paul is saying it's not about one or the other. It's not about rightness. It's about righteousness. It's not about the sperm or the egg. It's about the point where you receive new life on the inside that's birthed and formed within you that allows you to live from a new and living way. So I put here to worship in spirit and truth is to live from a spiritual revelation of the truth within us, the person of Christ. Put here, point number two. Let me just take a drink.
So point number one was true worshipers live from a true knowledge of who God is. And point number two, true worshipers live from a true revelation of what God has done for them. A revelation of what God has done for us is the starting point for true worship. It starts us on the right foundation from the finished work of Christ. If we don't have a view of what we have received from him, we will try and achieve this ourselves through works. Romans 12.1, if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Romans 12.1. says this, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is. By the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. The Greek word, excuse me, um, the Greek word where it says by the mercies of God, it means on account of or in view of God's mercy. We must have a view of God's mercy to be able to offer our bodies as a true and living sacrifice. It's the qualifying factor for worship. Without a view of what God has done for us, we will lay down our lives in an attempt to please God and approve ourselves to him. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God or in view of the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The fall brought about disconnection of relationship from God. We heard about in the prayer meeting this morning that when Adam and Eve sinned, God came racing after them. In my mind, his heart full of reconciliation and being for them. But they hid themselves from from him and sowed fig leaves over themselves. The, The fall brought about disconnect from God. And we have been tainted by the reality of the fall. And our inner realm screams at us disconnection from God, separation, rejection. And man's response is to try and make himself right before God, sowing fig leaves, trying to approve himself through his own energy, effort, and means. When God has said, I've got a better way for you, it's a new and living way. And the gospel brings about reconciliation, and it's reconciliation called righteousness. um, In Romans, the context of this passage is it talks about the Jews, and it says, in not knowing about God's righteousness, and trying to establish their own, they didn't subject themselves to the righteousness of God. In not knowing about God's righteousness, and not knowing the mystery of the gospel, that rightness comes through reconciliation through the blood of Christ, they attempted to make themselves righteous. Now, we could say this, because of a lack of revelation of the gospel, they didn't live from the reality of the gospel within them. They took offense at the message that was supposed to reveal the goodness and the grace of God. 
Now, my point, point number two, is this. True worshipers live from a true revelation of what God has done for them. Now, I know for myself, this has been such a massive thing um, in, in my walk. And I would read scriptures like in Hebrews where it talks about the blood of Jesus cleansing the conscience from dead works so that we could then serve a living God. And I would be baffled at how that could ever possibly be true. I would read about a reality in the scripture that says that the blood of Jesus does this. And yet it was not my real living experience. Now, what is that? Does that mean that I wasn't washed by the blood, wasn't justified, wasn't forgiven? Or does it mean that there was a greater revelation to enter into that would bring to light the reality that had been hidden from the foundations of the world that I could then enter into by faith? And I know that has been one of the most powerful things is actually when the scriptures all of a sudden come to light and have come to light within me to be able to now live from acceptance, from righteousness, from a cleansed conscience that I can wake up in the morning being right with God and now my act of service and worship is a now is a living act of devotion because I have been made right, and it's not to make myself right before Him through actions and works and trying to please Him. Now I don't have the sex, drugs, and rock and roll background or story, but you don't need that to be in these two postures that I'm describing. All of us were born into Adam. And the gospel says you must be born again. We were born into separation. We were born into not knowing who we are. But the gospel takes the reality of God that we had never known and brings it to light and to life within us. And it takes what was hidden, it makes it real. It takes things like justification, like forgiveness, And it takes them from being just mere concepts to a living reality that we live from. And in living from it, we offer our bodies through the mercies of God as a living and holy sacrifice, pleasing and acceptable to Him. Because we're not trying to make ourselves right through human effort. Actually, it's not about us at all. Paul declares all throughout the New Testament that he no longer lives. He no longer lives for himself. He doesn't even live for his own spiritual well-being. His thoughts are towards God and towards others. And in his thoughts being consumed with the revelation of who God is, it's in that place of letting go of you that you're actually taking care for, care for in him. You're tucked under the shadow of his wings when all of a sudden you're not consumed about your own spiritual achievement, but about who he is and what he's done. Paul says, I desire to know nothing among you apart from Christ and him crucified. And in knowing Christ and in knowing the revelation that comes through the crucifixion, the blood of Jesus, a living reality of what he has done, cleanses the conscience from dead works and has you serving the living God from a new and living way. 
it provides access to him, to be able to minister to him face to face as a priest, to be able to enter in with great confidence beyond the veil, and now to become a true worshipper of his from a new life source, a new substance within you. Now, to someone who's full of pride, hearing the message of mercy is the most offensive thing you could ever possibly hear. Now, to the Jews in this Romans passage, these are people who have spent their whole entire lives working for their own righteousness, striving, struggling, devoting their lives to come up with a physical form of devotion that they thought was pleasing and acceptable to God. And so Jesus turns up on the scene and he says, you search the scriptures because in them you think is eternal life. Actually, these scriptures scream of a relationship with me that would bring true life. You tithe dill and mint, but you neglect the weightier conditions of the law, righteousness and justice, mercy. You're devoted to an external form and expression, but let me tell you about a greater way. It's called new life in Christ. It's called the substance of Christ within you that then you live from and lay down and offer your body, not just your action, not just your devotion, not just this little um, signed, sealed, delivered set of instructions that has you living the right way, attending the services, coming to the prayer meeting, serving even on the worship team, but never entering into life and never being able to step outside of your defined religious box. Now, a good example of this, I think, is in Luke 17. You can turn your Bibles there if you've got, if you've got them, Luke 17. It's the parable of the ten lepers. Let me read this to you. While he, Jesus, was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he... Ah, uh, sorry... Uh, now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face and his feet giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was not one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Now, remember point number two, true worshipers live from a true revelation of what God has done for them. Now, in this story, we have 10 leprous men, and all of them collectively cried out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. 10 leprous men all crying out for mercy. Now, Jesus had mercy on all 10 of them. All 10 were cleansed. But how many came back? One. 10 leprous men received cleansing. But you know what it says about the one? It says, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. 
See, ten received mercy, but only one was made well. Ten received mercy, but only one received a revelation of that mercy that made them well. Ten received mercy, but only one received the substance of mercy on the inside that actually had a lasting, true impact that changed the way they worshipped. That brought him to his knees and brought him to this place of offering his body and his life as a living and holy sacrifice. Stand up, he said, and go, your faith has made you well. Now, I've been accused of only going to work so that I can get good examples for my sermons. <laughs> but at the... Um, <laughs> that's true, yeah. At the, at, um, you know, at the expense of um, just going through with that stereotype, you know, I said, you know, you know, as a um, as a case manager and a, and a work broker, we work with a lot of people, people particularly with health conditions and disabilities, who will come to us for support for job seeking, job searching, and um, all, and all that sort of thing. And for me as a, as a work broker, my job was to work with them and to address any barriers that they had to work and support them to become independent. And sitting down with people who I think were in a similar position to these 10 lepers a lot of the time would often come in and we'd have a conversation about the, the barriers that they had to employment. And, you know, I would say that the ratio here was similar to the ratio that we see. Now, this is, is an example of people who you know, might have a health condition or disability, but really it was the reality for every person we came into contact with that the barriers that were perceived were generally not the barriers that were actually the barriers. Now, in the famous words of Captain Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean, it's not the problem that's the problem. It's your attitude towards your, the problem. That's the problem. It's not the problem that's the problem. It's your attitude towards the problem. That's the problem. Now, for the 10 lepers, really, their biggest issue was actually not their physical disability. Their sickness, Jesus said, he said he cleansed them, but only one was made well. The wellness that he perceived was different from the wellness that they perceived. The wellness that they perceived was having a physical healing, but the wellness that he had in mind had a greater substance than that. So he granted all 10 of them mercy, but only one of them received true wellness that came through mercy. Do you know what peace literally means in the Greek? It means wholeness. So peace is not the absence of conflict or hard things going on. It's the reality and the substance of Christ within you. And so in my situation in the workplace, I'd sit down with people who would perceive that their physical disability was their barrier to work. And nine times out of ten, they had taken on the identity of disability, which was, their, which was their disability to work. It never was the actual physical thing most of the time. Now, that was the same with every well person in work and income. People would always perceive that the issue was the people who were interviewing them. The issue was always that they were just never given a chance. Actually, nine times out of ten, the issue was an, an underlying attitude that I had the luxury of having to address in a meeting face-to-face. -face. <laughs> Not always easy. 
But Jesus here had a better solution than just to, ten, to cleanse ten lepers from their physical ailments. He said, I, I've, got, I've got more in store for you than that. I want to make you well. Now the gospel, through the gospel, we all have received mercy. Have we not? As believing Christians, we have received mercy. We have been justified. We've been reconciled. We've been made right. We've been cleansed. We've been granted full access to the Father. But I wonder if we've been made well. I wonder if we've received the reality and the revelation of our wellness, of our mercy that has impacted our life in such a radical way that we've become true worshippers living from a new and living way. Living from a new substance within us. No longer living for God, but living from God. Now that's the great mystery of the gospel, not what God has done for you, but he says it's Christ within you, the hope of glory. Now, mercy is deeply offensive, I have to say. When you've been trying your whole life to earn your rightness, for someone to come and say that actually it's not on the basis of your good works, it's on the basis of his mercy. To the Jews, it says it was a great stumbling block. They were unable to receive a mercy that was so pure and so real. And in rejecting it, they had mercy lavished upon them, but they were unable to live from the substance of mercy that had altered them. I was sharing with some friends the other day about an encounter that I had with a woman on the train. And at rush hour, the train in Wellington, if you catch the Porirua Express, is absolutely jam-packed. Every seat is taken. Every aisle is full. Every doorway has people sitting in it. It's not really a, you know, a luxurious ride, that's for sure. Now, I was sitting, at the, I, was, I got there a bit early, so I had a seat and I was sitting down. And this lady who, you know, she came, she came along and she stood near me. Now, this lady wasn't, wasn't old, but she wasn't young. And so, <laughs> and so I, I got, <laughs> hey, I'm not giving away anything. You know, you can't interpret any age from that. But, you know, not, you know, like being a, just a, you know, relatively down-to-earth human being, I thought, well, actually, she is more in need of her seat than I am. So I jumped out of my seat and said, hey, here's a seat for you. Now, you would expect someone in that position who's just received mercy to take the weight off their feet on a train to be stoked. <laughs> and this lady turned around to me and she, she said, are you saying that I'm old? <laughs> And I said to her, and she made a little snarky comment, but she took the seat. <laughs> I, I jumped up, she took the seat. She said, are you saying that I'm old? <laughs> and I saying, I just said, no, I just thought you might like the seat. <laughs> but mercy spoke to her. But it spoke to her about who she wasn't and the life that she wasn't in as opposed to the love that she just had lavished on her. Now, this wasn't necessarily a holy Christian thing to do. It was just the right thing. But the Israelites here in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 were, had received this proclamation of mercy which had aggravated them. 
which had acted as a stumbling block, and it said that it was a rock of offense. Why? Because because of their minds and their hearts and the unbelief that was in them that had been tainted by the fall, their inner realm, when they received mercy for the first time, screamed at them, you're not good enough. It screamed at them about a reality that they weren't in, as opposed to the mystery of the gospel that's come to bring them into a new and living way, that has come to bring them new life. Now, because of this woman's insecurity, love sounded like rejection, sounded like offense, sounded like pointing out something in her that wasn't right. But sometimes that's how we can receive the message of mercy. And in not receiving the message of mercy, we don't enter into the reality of mercy that this leper entered into. We can't offer our bodies as a living, holy sacrifice unless we've received mercy. There needs to be a deep, humbling work on the inside that we receive a new life, a new and living way, a new way of operating that we hadn't yet before. I put here, we must have a true knowledge of what God has done for us as a foundation of our Christian lives. We must learn to live what he, um, what he has done. Uh, we have, must learn to live from God, not just for God. Now, point number three. This will be the last point, and we might just blast through this. Point number three, true worshipers live from a true work that God has done in them and through them. So point number two was that true worshipers live from a true revelation of what God has done for them. And point number three, true worshipers live from a true work that God has done in them and through them. When it says in Romans, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, Excuse me, it says, in view of God's mercy, that's mercy towards, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. See, mercy towards us is not enough. We need mercy towards us, but we also need his mercy in us and through us. In fact, the Bible defines it as grace, grace that empowers Grace that gives you the ability and the capacity to live in a way that you could never live before. There must be a true offering, a true expression of our devotion towards God. It's not okay just to stay in this point of mercy, knowing about what God has done for us. His, um, his sacrifice, His cleansing blood, His forgiveness of sin, His reconciliation. That Knowledge then translates to a real lived experience of a life that is placed in us and through us that results in actual action as we live a, uh, li- um, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. While we know that it's not about doing works, there has to be a work that comes that's just motivated from a completely different place. It's motivated from true knowledge. It comes from revelation. It's a new and living way. It's a new life source, a new substance within us. Now, for the sake of time, I was 
going to go through the parable of the talents, but I might just paraphrase it for you. Uh, Matthew chapter five, uh, 25. Now, there's a, a man who owns... Um, let's see. There's a, let me just read the first little bit. The parable of the talents, verse 14. For, as, for the kingdom is just like a man about to go on a journey who calls his own slaves um, and entrusts his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, um, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he goes on his journey. So he entrusts his servants with what he calls talents. And he goes away and he comes back and he has a conversation with the people that he's just entrusted his money to. And for the first two, the one that was given five talents and the one that was given uh, two, uh, two talents, I think it is, they go and invest what they're given and make a profit. But to the one who was given one talent, he goes and buries it. And the encounter between the master um, and the servant is interesting. Verse 24. And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Now all three were given talents and two go away and take what they're given and invest it. But one was equally given a talent. But it says this, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow. He had a knowledge of God that motivated a particular kind of behavior, a particular kind of expression, a particular kind of worship. His knowledge of God was as a hard man reaping where he did not sow and expecting of him something that he thought he wasn't able to deliver. And so because of his fear and his insecurity, he hid what he was given and it didn't bear fruit. Whereas the two others took what they were given and it bore much fruit. Now in this story, what was the issue? was not that he hadn't been given but that he lacked revelation. And in lacking revelation, he lacked the true expression of true worship, being able to offer what he had been given and it being a pleasing and holy sacrifice. Now, revelation of who God is produces this kind of living within us. Knowing who he is means that we can live free from insecurity and fear and bondage and expectation has us being free to live from this true and living way. In Hebrews, like I made reference to before, the priests offered gifts and sacrifices. They offered the right thing. But it says that those gifts were never able to cleanse their conscience and empower them to serve a living and true God. They had not, they had the right action, but not the right life source, the right substance, the right motivation within them that empowered them to live from this true and living way. I might leave it there for this morning, but 
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the message of your gospel that comes to have mercy on us and then produce mercy within us that has us living in a completely different way than what we were born into in Adam and has us living from the substance and reality of the last Adam, Christ within us. Father, I thank you that you're so devoted to us, um, to forming your very life within us that takes us um, from having just a form of worship but the substance of it. Father, I thank you that you've had mercy on us and you're forming your mercy, the life of your mercy within us that empowers us to offer our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Father, I thank you for your absolute commitment to us um, as your family. And Father, let us continue to dialogue and wrestle over these awesome truths of your word um, and to know you um, to a greater measure. So thank you for what you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen.